this Torah portion doesn't is the only Torah portion of the of the Bible which doesn't mention the name Moses. So everyone's getting names, everyone's having an identity, and then all of a sudden, this Torah portion doesn't mention Moses at all. Instead, let's read the first verse of uh, the Torah portion, and I'll read it in English and then in Hebrew. In English, it'll read, And you shall command the children of Israel that they shall bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. And in Hebrew, Va'ata tetzaveh et b'nei Israel. And you will command the sons of Israel, Va'yikachu alecha shemen zait zach katit. You'll take this for yourself, this um, crushed shemen zait, this special special um, pressed shemen zait, for the, for the lighting of the eternal flame, the eternal candle. And uh, what's interesting about this is, is Moses has been dealing, or God has been dealing with Moses and dealing with the people. And usually when God speaks to the people, he'll say something like, Moses, tell Aaron to say to the people, Moses, go tell the people. This is now very different. This is you command them. We've journeyed so much, so, so intimately with God now that there's no need for names. Moses and God are at such a relationship, there's no need for names. Right? That's how close they are now, right? This is how, and uh, it's not that you know, God introduces the command you command now imagine what it's like to be on the receiving end if you're an israelite who actually is giving you god's commands human god's never commanding you human is commanding you how do i know the human is being truthful how do i know this is actually from god okay this is uh this is probably something that many of us need to try and figure out in our own lives because actually we usually hear God's commands through other people more than we hear it from God directly if we are honest so God's commands are you are related to this world right? they're carried out through humans there is this incredible partnership that you see with uh, with heaven and earth which is exactly what you see at the end of the of the book of Matthew with the Great Commission, where Jesus says, you go out into all the world, you tell the good news, you do the baptisms, you do the teaching. You, know, you could almost put a dot, 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 and the disciples are going, and what are you going to do? Okay, we're going to do everything. What, what's, what's, uh, what's, your, what's your part of the, 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 the story here? Um, it's, there is this, who shares the gospel? Who actually shares the good news of Jesus as the Messiah? You know, it's humans. You know, God could do this. God could send an angel to every single person on the planet right now. Every single person. Eight billion people could suddenly have an angelic visitor. And the angelic visitor could say, hi, 
guess what? You're all wrong, and there's a God. And uh, let's all let's all believe in Jesus now. And that's it. We're done. Right? Um, but this, what, what, why doesn't he do that? Well, probably all kinds of reasons. One, because people still wouldn't even believe it even happened in the first place. Right? They would start to trick themselves. Oh, I'm not even sure that this could be from Satan. Who really knows what's going on? Did everybody hear the same message? Um, who really knows why? The point is, there's a partnership, and humans are involved in this. And uh, and then, so the, the the Torah portion starts. There's no more Moses. We're now on an intimate relationship. Moses, you and I, we know each other really well. You know my heart. I know your heart. You go and command the people. And the first command is, is to, to create this, this idea of light, which you will light the menorah and it will be, be uh, an eternal light, which is an interesting question. What's all the stuff in the tabernacle for in the first place? Right? I mean, um, why does God, who is light, need light? especially to burn it continually when no one's actually going to be in the room. Okay? People don't walk into this room and use it all the time. No one, uh, Aaron isn't going to sit next to the candle and use it to read a book. Okay? Um, he only goes in maybe once or twice a, a day and uh, he does a special service and he leaves. And this re the rest of the light burns to nobody. What is it actually for? What is the bread for, the showbread that sits on that, on that uh, altar? Or at the end of the Torah portion, what is the incense for? The, the, the Torah portion actually ends with this detailed description of all these ingredients for making a special smell. And, and, and God will say in this Torah portion, this one's mine. You, know, you can have any, whatever perfume you like. You know, knock yourselves out. But uh, this flavor... This section of ingredients is just for me. And you go, why? But you're God. How do you, how do you even have a nose? How do you, how does this work for you? And there's um there's there's something about um uh there's light. Even though God is light, we'll make light. Okay? Even though God gives us the bread of heaven, we'll give him bread. Even though God pours out sweet fragrance on all of us. Let's give that back in some way. So, so a lot of what's going on in the tabernacle is, in, is a mimic of God, that, uh, that we're, we're imitating the things that God does. And the, the, the rabbis have a, a saying. Okay? They'll say the world is sustained by the imitation of God. How does the world keep going? It's because humans make the decision to actually act like God. They'll say, I, God has done all these wonderful things. I'm going to respond by doing exactly what he does. And if he loves the world, I will too. If he wants to feed the poor, I will feed the poor. If he wants to defend the weak, you've got, I'll, I've got their back. And that will keep the world going. As soon as all humans stop imitating God, show's over. Right? Until the If the world is full of people doing all their own thing, obsessed with all of their own selves and not doing anything to do the deeds of God, then we're back to Genesis 6. We're back to God looking on the planet and saying, okay, this is terrible and something needs to, needs to be done. So the, this sort of idea is that, um, that, uh, that there's this imitation of the divine going on in the tabernacle. And that's actually a reflection of what we're supposed to do. So there's a lot of these objects which don't seem to have any 
literal meaning, and they but they have an implied spiritual meaning. It's not like God ever ate the bread, right? They, it, that that didn't happen, and um, uh, and and it's quite possible that, and, and probably true, that God actually does delight in the smells of of incense. Um, I bet he does. I bet he also likes the smell of roses, by the way. Um, and and uh, but there and there is this idea of light being super important. Um, the oil that they use to to crush it, um, you know, is 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 really crushed oil. The zach uh, they call it in Hebrew. Um, it really implies that there's a suffering involved to make light. Okay, that there's um, it's not just a nice gentle squeeze. This is a real, real a real suffering. The uh, the Torah portion um, does a lot of preparation of the tabernacle. It uh, discusses, you know, what the priests should wear, and um, I know that um, some of us have had this discussion before. Uh, the, there's quite a detailed and uh, of what the the servants of the Lord in the tabernacle should look like, and it's actually quite colourful when you look at it. Right, it's purples and blues and scarlets and gold and silver and there's little tinky bells and and beautiful sashes. Um, and none of the sort of boring stuff that we wear these days. We wear white robes. How boring is that, eh? And we might put on some colourful stole, perhaps, to give it a little bit of decoration. When you have a look at the of the tabernacle, you'll probably walk in and go, "Oh, Greek Orthodox," um, because it's a lot more colourful in 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 their world. Um, I've actually been challenged many a time as to, you know, Aaron, why do you wear robes? Um, and of course, my only answer can be, uh, well, what should I wear? You you find the chapter verse of what I'm supposed to wear. If you find the verse that says, "Thou sh should wear a suit and a tie, and you know, Armani jeans," I'm on it. But um, we don't have that, and so uh, you, there, there's there is a. a, a there is God has something for His servants. When when you when you're coming in to say with me, dress up a little. Okay? Don't wear something normal. Wear wear something, wear something special. Um, some of the articles that are described in this Torah portion, no one has a clue what they are, okay, or why they're there. For example, the breastplate. Okay, that's kind of cool. We put a little thing on on the high priest thing uh, chest and put little stones there. But why is this a communication device? Like what? What kind of magic is going on here? Don't know. Okay, there really is no satisfactory answer other than it is actually used. And there's 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 um, uh, parts of David's journey where he actually has his priest um, Aviatar, and he actually asks questions of God through the uh, the breastplate, the ephod, and the urim, ur urim and thumim. Um, why does it work that way? Don't know. Okay, that's, there really isn't a satisfactory answer other than God is a, is is mysterious and uh, and He has a, a way of of deciding to communicate. The uh, the there's a, there is a, a a fair bit of how the priests make atonement for all of the articles of the temple, and that's actually going to start linking in. The tabernacle, and that'll be the, the, the link that takes us to the uh, Torah portion, the Haftarah portion. Um, atonement, which is the word kapara, uh, covering, it, it, lots of things are covered 
not just sins of people. Okay? Things are the ground, the altar, the priests themselves, okay? their clothing, the tabernacle. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that, that, that are covered. Um, remember, God so loved the world. Okay? It's not just that, you know, that God comes down and decides, you know what, I'm going to just save a bunch of humans. But everything else can just be is just rubbish. Because that's not true. Right from the get-go, when God made the world, he turned around and he said, this is good. Not bad, good. Not uh, slightly okay, I can do better. This is fantastic. Right? And, and, and God likes it. He enjoys it. He himself decided to become a part of it when he um, uh, uh, would, would come down and be with Adam in the garden. It's not, it's not that God would be walking around going, man, uh, I hope you're enjoying yourself here, Adam, because you know this place just sucks much better in heaven. You really should have been there. I don't even know why I didn't make you up there in the first place. Okay? There is this thing about God's love of, of, of the world, and it's all going to be redeemed. Okay? Not just the humans on it, but everything, and you actually see that sort of being played out in uh, in the tabernacle, where things are also toned and covered, and not just humans. Very important for humans, absolutely, but also let's um, uh, cover the place too. Um, in verse twenty, in chapter twenty-eight, when we're making and describing how the garments of the priesthood, uh, I, I personally just found it interesting that that. Uh, God would say, now take your brother Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel. He'll minister to me as a priest, uh, him and his sons, etc. And then we start talking about their, their holy clothing. Um, as though God doesn't know that the next Torah portion is coming. And what happens in the next Torah portion? I hear you ask. The golden cow. You know, um, God is setting aside these people whom are going to fail, right? We're, we're only like five chapters away from failure. Uh, what is God doing? Why doesn't he say, uh, Moses, look, we've got, we got some, uh, in, in about five chapters, things aren't going to go so well. So start warning people, okay, and, 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 and prep ahead here. Um, there is something about the, the, the journey. There is something about free will and choice. There is something about God's continual desire to repair the world and these these relationships. So that and 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 and, as, and part of that journey, Moses is not an unflawed character. He's he's got faults. Right? Remember, he's a, a murderer. He's a coward. You know, he's run away. And he's, but yet, as he's journeyed with the Lord, he's gotten to that incredible intimate moment where God doesn't need even to call him his name anymore. He just says, you, you go do this. You go, you go tell them. They need, they need to hear your voice, Moses, more than they need mine. They need my voice. But dang it, they need to hear it from you. And so there's this, there's this intimacy that, that's going on. It's very special, and it, and it plays out in, in probably some part parts of the text that we're not always uh, keen to look at. I and mean, after all, we're just building a tent for crying out loud and dressing up some priests in funny clothing. But there is little hints here of how of the desire of God uh, to have intimacy with absolutely everyone. We all want to get to that stage where 
God says, you know, doesn't use Aaron anymore. He says, hey, friend, you, did you do this? And it's, and it's very personal. It's singular, ta. It's not like it's really personal and, um, and, and, and very special. And this takes us to now um, the Haftarah portion, which they chose to be Ezekiel. And um, Ezekiel is one of those books, of course, that some people like to try and avoid um, because it's really weird, right? It's a diaspora book. Um, di diaspora books have a tendency to not look like the other books of the land. So books like Daniel have incredible weird dream sequences. Ezekiel's even weirder dream sequences. Okay, um, they they read differently from the prophets that are actually in in the land. Uh, in verse uh, chapter forty three is where it starts. Ten to twenty seven. Um, I'll just get to. I think it's a good a good version. I guess I'm going to use the New King James. Um, how's that one? I know we always like to read NIV here sometimes, but here we go. Son of man. Now, the the Ezekiel is often called son of man, and Jesus is also the son of man. I know, uh, but the word here, son of man, in Hebrew, literally, uh, uh, ben adam, is uh, the way you would describe it uh, in Hebrew for human. And if I want to say in Hebrew, I'm just a guy, I make mistakes all the time, just say, I'm just simply a guy. Um, the The... So when Jesus says, you know, Ani ben Adam, I'm the son of man. How, how, you know, most people would probably say, yeah, you're a guy. Yeah, well, well me too, dude. Um, that doesn't seem like it was such a really cool title. Do you want to try something else? Um, because most likely uh, Jesus would have been actually saying that in Aramaic. Now in Aramaic, it's Bar Enosh, and that's what you find in Daniel. Right? So if you so if someone says Ben Adam, you can just run to human being. But if you turn around and say Bar Enosh, well then you're only referencing the character that's in Daniel, which is this eschatological, um, powerful figure that enters the throne room of heaven, and uh, the Lord God honors somehow with everything: the kingdom, worship, power, authority, angels. Uh, principalities and uh, and and the Barinosh, the Son of Man, receives it. Okay, and uh, and 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 so when Jesus wants to identify himself, he's, and he, he could and by saying it in Aramaic, it really uh, comes through um, as a as a as a point, especially if he's actually switching from Hebrew to Aramaic. Okay, it would really work a lot better if he was talking to someone in Hebrew, switched to Aramaic, and then went back to Hebrew. Then people were like, huh, wonder why he did that. Okay, that would uh, set people set people thinking. Son of man. Okay, so the you're you're a human. Describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, uh, and let them measure the pattern. Okay, so we're getting this vision uh, sequence. 
of the temple and we're about to get a big description of what the altar is. Uh, it's quite detailed. Um, and then we're going to dedicate it, which is sort of a little parallel to the dedication of the, of the tabernacle that's occurring in the Torah portion. That was probably why they linked these, these together. Um, I find that very interesting because it means that the Jewish, the Jewish Haftarah, the lectionary, is not ignoring a potential third temple, as controversial as that might be. I mean, if you had a lectionary and you wanted to skip some stuff, you know, if you've got the Christian lectionary, let's not read Romans 9, 10, 11, let's just skip 8 to 12. You know, we keep the controversy away. Um, but here, it's, it's a third temple or a fourth temple, depending on whether you think King Herod's temple was the third, third one or not. Um, there's the, the, the vision, the, the prophet tells the people of Israel, listen, give them this vision so they can feel ashamed. Why would they be ashamed? They're within diaspora, um, which means that their first temple, Solomon's temple, the beautiful one, okay, Zerubbabel's temple was a sort of a poor attempt in the end, and they ended up sort of building it and then getting very upset that they'd sort of built it. Um, Solomon's temple was glorious. Okay? It was beautiful. It was impressive. It had light. It had gold. It had exquisite craftsmanship. You know, it was made uh, without uh, chiseling of stone on site. Right? They had gone and they had built this thing that it says deliberately in, in, in Kings that they had cut all the stones off site. And then brought them and, and sort of built them at the at, at the on the Temple Mountain, um, which begs all kinds of questions. How the heck did they move all those stones? Right. Some of those, if those of you have been to Israel, have you actually seen the sheer size of these stones at the base of the Temple Mountain? The the ones down the bottom are five hundred tons. Right? And um, how did they do it? How could they? If you have an, if you have an honest, an honest engineer, who would look at those stones and you honestly asked him, "Hey, how would you actually move something like this?" Then their answer, honestly, will be, "No clue. We don't have an, an, an a piece of equipment big enough to do that." Oh, they used ropes and you know planks of wood. No, they didn't. Absolutely no possible way. You stick any piece of wood under that stone, it's crushed. You try and pull. You don't have enough horses with a rope that's not going to break due to tension to move some of these things. But how do they do it? Don't know. Okay? Um, although my, I have theories about it, and I'll explain that a little bit later. But they build it without, without sound, and it was fantastic. So then why did it get destroyed? The prophet is, uh, is reminding people of the shame that their community has because they had the temple and they let it be destroyed. Now, both temples uh, are destroyed and in, in Jewish exegesis, the reasons given, uh, in the first temple it was because of idolatry, that Israel just couldn't keep their hands off other people's gods. Okay. And uh, and so in archaeology, in when you dig things up in 
in the Middle East. When you come to an Israelite settlement of the uh, first temple period, you find idols. They're everywhere. Okay? Um, but, but in the second temple period, when you come to an Israelite settlement and you're digging it up, there's no idols. Okay? When they were in captivity, they had a deep, hard, introspective look at themselves. And they'd worked out what they've done wrong, changed their behavior. And when they came back, idolatry wasn't the problem. A new problem had arisen. And what was it? Money. Okay? Because while we had been in Babylon, we'd gotten ourselves rich. And, uh, and so the New Testament often argues against greed. You can't serve God and mammon, the, the, the idea of money and wealth, so, as opposed to something other type of God, even though it could, greed is a form of idolatry. So let, may they be ashamed at what I'm about to tell you. And here is... Uh, the, the design. They are ashamed of what they've done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, its entire design, all its ordinances in all its forms and its laws. So there were laws of the temple, okay? The, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, the Torah Tabait, okay? the, the, the laws of the house, the instructions of the house. Verse 12, this is the, the law of the temple, the Torah, tab Torah Tabait. Um, we use the word temple here, but um, in, in Hebrew, it just uses the word house. Okay, That's what uh, you call the temple mountain, Har Habayit, the mountain of the house. Um, in 1967, when they actually captured Jerusalem, uh, the, uh, it's a, the, the famous tagline was a soldier stood on the temple mountain and uh, shouted out, the mountain of the house is ours. Okay? We've, we've recaptured the mountain where the house of God stood. So uh, the, the, the prophet is now giving this vision sequence of this new temple, and we're going to dedicate it. We're going to build it properly. So uh, the laws, the, the instructions of the, of the house, the Torah Tabait. Um, and so this is what's going to happen. <clears throat> the whole area surrounding the mountaintop is holy. And the foundational principle is holiness. Right? That's uh, we've, we, for those that, that studied Leviticus, we understand that you know, God is a creator in Genesis. He reveals his name in Exodus. He's a lawgiver, yes. He's a, a guide. He's a shepherd. He's a redeemer, yes. He's all of those things. But he's also holy. And he turns around and he wants his people to be holy. And anything attached to him is holy. His name is holy. His word is holy. His people are going to be holy. And and the, the place where he, he builds his temple or guards his name um, is, is holy. And so Leviticus is actually one of the more important books, in my opinion, because it describes what holiness is, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your parents. Guard the Sabbath. You know, these are all very intrinsical parts of actually being a holy people. And you have this, uh, the, this idea that everything um, is going to be is going to be um, uh, holy. The 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 Ezekiel is going to go into intense detail, just like Exodus does, into the exact size and dimensions um, of the temple um, and the altar. But there's one thing it doesn't mention: it doesn't mention the material it's made out of. I don't know whether that's an oversight, <laughs> whether they sort of kind of just, it'll be made out of rock. 
That's what we have in Israel. We've got lots of it. You'll find some. Um, I, but the, uh, the, 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 the way it all faces and the, 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 the way it's going to face, it's going to face east. Or the steps, actually, will face east. Which will actually mean the worshiper faces west, if you think about it. Um, the, the temple was orientated east, but the worshiper faced the other way. Um, but that the early churches actually did the reverse. They actually faced east. And they sort of looked at the temple and said, we will face east. Okay? And, uh, and, and Tertullian, who's all the way over there in the west, okay, he actually records that um, the non-Christians thought that the Christians worshipped the sun. Because it was always facing east when the sun came up. And they said, oh, we, got, we, we figured out these people. They're sun worshippers. They talk about the sun all the time. They face east. Um, they're just pagans. And obviously, from the outside, it might have looked that, looked that way. So here are the dimensions of the altar. Altars are not pagan inventions. Okay? Altars occur in the Bible. God has altars. Why? He, there's something about them. Right? And so when you go into a, uh, a church, uh, everything inside a church, uh, all the furniture is theological. You usually don't put things inside churches for no reason, unless you're stupid. Okay? You usually have them there for, for reasons. Piano, because we're worshipping. We've got chairs, I'm going to sit down. We've got a bima, that's where we'll preach the word of God. We've got an altar, that's where we're going to um, gather around and, and, and break bread and wine. Yeah, You don't just stick a cupboard there for no reason. Okay, there's reasons for everything. So these are the measurements of the altar in cubits. Don't ask me what a cubit is. The cubit is one cubit and a hand breadth. Okay, thanks for asking. That did not help. Okay? But we don't know what a cubit is. The base, one cubit high, one cubit wide, the rim all around, its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. Uh, from the base of the ground to its lower edge, two cubits, width of the edge. One cubit from the smaller ledge to the large ledge, four cubits, the width of the ledge, one cubit. Then the altar hearth is four cubits high, four horns extending upwards from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, squares on its corners. The, le the ledge, 14 cubits long, 14 wide on its four sides, with a rim of half a cubit around its base, one cubit all around, and its steps face towards the east. So out of all of that, the only thing that was actually really highlighting to me was the east bit. The rest of it was like, oh, gosh, I'm sure when they build it, it'll be fine. Okay? And I've seen the actual replicas of the altar for anyone who's ever been to the Israel Museum. And um, there, there was a brand new display, although it's not a brand new display anymore. It's been over there a year, which was called Feasts and Festivals. And the idea was it was going to discuss feasts and festivals in antiquity. You know, how important they were for nations, how important they were for kings and religious holidays and stuff. And it, and they were, and it were describing the plates and the cutlery and the food and the services and all that sort of thing. But the very first article that you saw when you walked into the display was the altar. As I said, there's lots of feasts. There's always a feast with God. Worship of the Lord involves food. And um, there just seems to be a thing. You go, you go through all of the festivals, except for Yom Kippur, which has something to do with food. You can't have any, but everything else, there is this idea of, of fellowshipping and eating with the Lord. 
Moses and the elders go up onto the mountain to, the receive, to receive the Torah. What do they do? They eat and drink. When you get to heaven, marriage feast of the Lamb, there's something about food. And so this altar idea is, is actually quite important because you're going to be doing a lot of preparation of food on it. Uh, and there's something about fellowship that God delights. And I don't know about you, but I bet everyone here likes to eat. It is one of the basic intrinsic joys and need necessities, but joys that every creature on the planet has. I don't know many people who put anything in their mouth and go, I'm not having fun anymore. Usually we are. We enjoy it. There's all kinds of you know, endomorphins and salivas and all kinds of things that, that our body reacts to food. And I would say God might too, actually. There's something about him also desiring to be eating and drinking uh, with us. You're going to consecrate this altar. You can't just leave it. You've got to build something, and then you've got to atone for it. You actually prepare it. You cover it, uh, which is the verb. So God says, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day that it is made, the sacrifice. Ooh. Let's read that again. These are the ordinances on the altar on the day when it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are the seed of Zadok, who approach to me, to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of the blood, put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it, as though it is sinful, sinned. It hasn't sinned, not, hasn't sinned anything, because atonement, is, is, is different to forgiveness. Okay? They often go hand in hand. Okay? They're often part of the same process. But atonement is a covering. The blood of Jesus covers us. Yes, we are forgiven. That is also true. And that is, is through repentance. Okay? And, things like, and the way we forgive each other. But atonement is something else. Even things can get atoned. And uh, you shall take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you'll offer a kid of the goats without a blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleanse it with the bull. And then when you're finished cleansing it, you'll offer a young bull without a blemish and a ram from the flock without a blemish, and then you'll offer them before the Lord. The priests will throw salt on them, and they will offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Every day, for seven days, you'll prepare a goat, There's a lot of animals here, for a sin offering. And they'll also prepare a young bull and a ram for the flock, both without blemish. Seven days, they'll make atonement for the altar and purify it. I mean, my gosh, you got to do a lot to, 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 to cover this altar. It's not just a one-off thing here. Uh, when these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priests shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar and I'll accept you, says the Lord your God. Okay, uh, one of the problems that this brings uh, when, we, when we think of this future is the fact that it's in the future. Why do we need sacrifices in the future? Why are we offering sin offerings 
is in the future. Right? You know, this sort of idea, like if this is Messiah's temple and Messiah's here, and we've already done the redemptive activity, what sin are we possibly needing a sin offering for? Plus, what's this thing called a blemish? You mean things aren't perfect? You've got a non-blemished animal out there? If you have, where did that come from? Um, what in what world are we talking about? It actually gets very interesting. Um, I remember giving a discussion uh, a long time ago uh, in uh, Ohio. And there I am in Ohio. This is where my bishop is. So I'm visiting a church. And uh, one of the texts of the reading for the day happened to be Ezekiel. So I decided I'd just mention it and mentioned sacrificial system and how the sacrifices help us to be to draw close to God, you know, sort of downplaying the sort of idea that you've got to start killing all these things so that otherwise God won't like me, you know, which is not what sacrifices are. Okay? But um, and 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 people were sort of you know sort of being challenged but enjoying it and sort of going, wow, it's interesting. Uh, but at the end a couple of uh, vegetarians got, came up to talk to me. You can see where this is going. And uh, thought that that, uh, that wasn't very nice. You know, that um, they really don't, they, they don't accept this, you know, basically book of scripture because they're vegetarians and there's no way that um, we would ever, ever, ever kill animals in the future or even eat their flesh. Like, this is not going to happen. Um, my only response to that was, uh, I don't know what to tell you, baby, but God's not a vegetarian. Um, it's not my problem. It's not God's problem. It's your problem. Okay? Now, vegetarianism is not, not against vegetarians. It's not. I tried to be a vegetarian. Uh, it didn't work. But that's my problem. Okay? Um, the, the, you, 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 but you can't superimpose our uh, dietary uh, and culinary delights and superimpose them on either the Bible or God. Uh, but it, it does bring out some interesting questions for us, which I'm not 100% sure we actually have the answers. We are talking about a visionary um, temple ex uh, experience. The actual full scope of the temple, which is quite, quite a few chapters long, um, doesn't look like the temple that's here or the two temples that are described in um, the, the the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. There's no courts. There's no division markers. You don't separate Jews and Gentiles. You don't separate priests and Levites. You don't, you don't separate men and women. You're all together. Yeah. Huh. Now that's nice. Okay. Um, the the but, but there is um, there is. Uh, room for offerings, all types of offerings and sacrifices, which begs the question, what are they doing in the future? Burnt offerings are things that are entirely consumed for God. You don't get to have a, a part of them. All other offerings you actually consume a part of. Part is given to God, part is given to the priests for their, for their pay, and then the rest is actually done by you in fellowship. Uh, here you've got all kinds of offerings, including just Peace offerings, free will offerings. This is the ones that you just give for no reason other than you love God so much, and uh, and you're desiring to engage in this in this form of worship. It uh, raises questions like, um, what will we consume in the future? Will we consume anything? Well, my question is, why would you not? Okay, if you've got a new body, uh, I'm going to assume that on the inside of that new body. Our organs, 
um, because otherwise, if you haven't got interior organs, guess what? You can't talk, just so you know, okay? Um, there's going to be no shouts to the Lord uh, if you haven't got lungs, okay? Um, you're going to need stuff to be, able to, to be able to do that. Now, if you've got internal organs, why have you got internal organs? Okay? Um, what are you putting in this thing? Uh, what is the marriage feast of the Lamb if we're all just having bread? Okay? You know, the sort of you know, manna from heaven. Um, uh, we're having this fantastic feast uh, of bread. Um, I hope you're going to enjoy this because this is going to last forever. don't know. Okay, so you, you actually have a Jewish tradition where, which says that in the future, animals get resurrected as soon as you've eaten them. Okay, and you think, well, that's just crazy. You know, you know these rabbis are on drugs. You know, why would they be saying such a thing? Um, but it does play out in some Second Temple period literature. Uh, in particular, it, it shows up in the Testament of Abraham, those of us who studied it. Uh, together, there was this encounter where angel, the angel Michael comes to to talk to Abraham, and Sarah recognizes him, and uh, sort of whispers in in uh, Abraham's ear, "You know who that is? That's that's Michael. He came and and uh, visited us, and we fed him. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that cow that we fed these guys resurrected, okay, and came back to life. So nothing is wasted. You know, everybody, uh, uh, animal." Uh, offer themselves willingly and freely and hope that they taste good and if not they'll do better next time um, and uh, uh, all kinds of things but it does make us ponder what vision are you looking at Ezekiel uh, yes I'm challenged by shame you're right we're, we're, we're ashamed of what we've done that dishonored your name so much that you had to destroy your first temples we're ashamed of that. We don't want to do that again. We want to. We want to honor your name. We want to be a holy people. We want the mount, your mountain, to be a holy mountain. We want people to stream in and pray. What does Jesus say when he casts out the money changes? This should have been a house of prayer, not a house of sacrifice. A house of prayer for all nations. Okay, everybody should have been praying here. Um, this is, it's supposed to be set apart and holy. So there's, there's, this, there's this vision sequence that the prophet is saying of it's going to be it's going to be like this again, and uh, we're going to have a fellowship. We're going to get intimate. Uh, uh, we're going to have meal occasions. We're going to know each other eventually so well our names will stop. We won't need to use them. We'll get to that stage where it's just you, me, and uh, and that's not my personal pronouns. Okay, that's that's the 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 rela intimate relationship that God actually wants uh, wants to have us there. Uh, the future also describes a priestly class. Okay? Why would you need some if the Messiah is going to be here? Why would you need atonement for anything in the first place? I mean, there's lots of questions that, that, uh, that come up. Probably none uh, that have answers per se other than they challenge us. They challenge us on, on, uh, on, on the, the, the idea that God actually has this strong desire to be with his people, that holiness is going to extend out from, from uh, the mountain to, to all the world, to, uh, to anybody who comes to this temple is going to, be, um, is going to encounter a, a worship system it's going to be a system of worship, a system of fellowship, uh, which will probably involve food. 
and uh, and uh, and there's a uh, there's certain rules that still apply in the future. But remember, if you don't have law, then you are lawless, right? and that's a that's a bad bad place to be because one of the names of the enemy is the man of lawlessness. So all these people that keep wanting to say, I'm not under the law, I'm lawless. Like, Oops, that's bad. You're still a slave, dear brother. You're a slave to God, just like me. And uh, we would actually want to be receiving his instructions because his instructions are good and, uh, and very good for us. All right. So a, a whole bunch of challenges there, but... Um, Let's open it up now to see if we can come to any conclusions, if there is something to think. Thanks for joining us in the scriptures today. You may have noticed that it sounds like this podcast is part of a larger discussion on those scriptures. Well, that's because it is. We welcome you to join us live each Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. Jerusalem time for our online Bible study of Kings and Prophets, Voices from the Haftarah. You can find the sign-up link at our social media pages at Christ Church Jerusalem. This podcast has been a production of Christ Church Jerusalem and CMJ Israel. We'd like to thank our teachers, producers, and most of all, our friends who make this Bible study a joyful endeavor week to week. And in fact, we hope to see you next week. Until then, blessings from Jerusalem.